Welcome everyone to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host Danny Ferris here with my buddy and Hoyt Marketing Manager Jeremy Eldridge. And today our special guest is Justin Gordon. Justin is the man who in 2018 managed to take the highest scoring mule deer ever. That's ever by a bow hunter. If Bow hunting mule deer was a game of King of the Hill. Justin Gordon stands at the pinnacle above all of us. <laughs> now, I have spoken to Justin for, oh, and Justin is a humble guy. So, <laughs> Justin, how do you even wrap your head around that? Well, I I don't really think about it until you come out. <laughs> Come, come out with an with an entrance like that. I don't know if we, I think we should just shut it off and let people use their imagination. Otherwise, I'll just screw it up. No, man. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sorry to put you on the spot like that, but it's a that's a pretty awesome title, man. That is a pretty phenomenal title, and it must be hard to wrap your head around. Uh, well, when you put it that way, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. I thought I uh, know. Uh, I know no, it's, it's, it's funny though, you know, because, um, I think that's what makes so many people like mule deer so much is it's just, I think about it for a moment and then I think, yeah, but there are so many deer I've seen on the hill that I like as much or more, right? That right. one's just really unique, happens to score out of this world. Yeah. And we'll, we'll probably talk about that as we go on, but yeah, I, until I talk to people like you, I really don't have a problem wrapping my head around it. But when you throw it out there like you did, it's it's pretty You're king of the mountain, man. You yeah. are king of the mountain. Never considered that. I, I look at a lot of guys as king of the mountain in the archery or 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 mule deer or elk world. I've never put myself on the mountain, much well, less at the top of it. <laughs> move over, Randy Ulmer. <laughs> yeah, no, let's not even bring that up. <laughs> Randy Ulmer is the pinnacle. You know, he's one of those guys that I've looked up to, and that's he's, who's the that's who's at the top. He's pretty darn consistent. That's for yeah, darn sure. Right. Um, so before we get into the story of this amazing buck, we just want to learn a little bit more about you. So tell us about yourself. Uh, are you married? You have kids? Yeah, well, uh, I'm just kind of the, the regular guy next door. Wife, 22 years, um, four children, three boys, one girl, ages 20 to 10. Right. And, That's, uh, yeah, my daughter's so the 17 you've gotten year into old. the ex expensive portion or the expensive part of raising children. Well, yeah, we talk about that. It's funny you mentioned that because we're like, so when do we stop paying for the phone and when do we stop paying for car insurance and <laughs> how much do we really want to help with school? Right. Yeah. Um, we've decided we want our kids to have the, uh, wonderful experience of paying for their own school. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's, I thought it would get less expensive, but. You know. Well, once they start driving, that's when things get really cranked up. So what do you, uh, what do you do for a living? Uh, we work, I, so I've been in commercial finance for the last, uh, 20 years. Uh, and just last year is kind of interesting because it was while I was on my bow hunt in Colorado last year that, uh, I, after 20 years at one place, I changed jobs and it was due to the time that I had to reflect and, and sit back and think about things like you do in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I've been in commercial finance banking for 20 years. And just last year I moved over to Zions bank, which is just a regional bank here. 
right. um, to do the same thing that I've been doing for the last 20 plus years, but for them. And how long have you been bow hunting? This is a good question because I've never actually put years to it. I haven't. It's got to be 14, 15. I need to go back to the actual date because it was something that was on my mind for so many years. Like so many people, you kind of evolve into it, I think. Right. Did you um, start out as a rifle hunter or? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Who got you into bow hunting? So no one. It's really interesting. Really? Yeah. It's, it's something that I saw going on from afar. And I would say for four or five years, I would be rifle hunting and I would be like, this isn't, you know, it's, it's all right. Um, I enjoyed it, but there were a lot of people out. Yeah. And so there was that part of it, but there was also just that evolution of wanting to be a little bit better at whatever you call that field craft or, you know, whatever you have in the mountains when you're around animals, archery hunting had always appealed to me. I mean, the first person that introduced a bow to me was my brother-in-law when I was really young. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I had a friend of his had an old browning thing that I could shoot blackbirds with. And I actually hit a few birds in my backyard with a, with a blunt tip and a browning when I was like 10, 12 years old. Right. And then my friends had bows growing up and, and it, so it was always in the back of my mind, but it wasn't something that someone brought to my table. Um, it was just a desire to get closer to game, a desire to be better at things and a desire to get away from people. And all of that finally hit its tipping point probably about 15 years ago. And I haven't hunted big game with a rifle since not that I, I take my kids out right. with rifles, that sort of thing. You but, know, uh, I've, I've yeah. told people lots of times that, you know, I started out as a rifle hunter too. And I think that my primary reason for getting into bow hunting was extending my season. And that was the coolest part to me because usually when I went rifle hunting, it was like one week, wham, bam, you're done. And that was it for the rest of the year. You know what I mean? Whereas once I got into bow hunting, I extended it to pretty much all fall. You know, there was always something going on that I could go bow hunt. Um, and then after bow hunting, you know, almost exclusively for many years, at least 20, um, you know, it wasn't like I have anything against rifle hunting. I, I like rifle hunting. I enjoy rifle hunting. And now when I do head out with the occasional cow tag in my pocket or something like that, it's like this, there's this feeling when you're leaving, like, Oh, don't let me lay eyes on you today. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's <laughs> it's pretty so cool. Funny. It's pretty cool. Uh, that's, yeah, yeah. That's funny. It's, uh, I mean, I, I've started you all, everything that you talked about is, is part of what led me to archery. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I reload, I was heavy into reloading, I can remember still to this day, some of my loads for different rifles. Um, and, and, uh, but shooting's expensive. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want, if you want to do it right, yeah, you want to reload and get into the, the minutia. Mm -hmm. That was part of it. I do recall. I mean, when you started to talk, Danny, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember the fact that I, I love shooting my bow and I can yeah. go shoot my bow 
and then there's a one-time cost. It doesn't cost you I ten dollars per out, shot, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. You get to reuse so, your bullets. I mean, you yeah. can talk. You can talk about everything that you said, and it brings back the memories of yeah. I remember this this process, and I don't know why, but it took me about five years of why aren't I archery hunting? Right. Um, to finally buy a bow, and then I went down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So how long did it take you before you discovered like you're you're a backcountry hunter uh based on our conversation conversation before what tell us what your biggest passion is in bow hunting like which species how to hunt them and how long it took you to get into that yeah that's part of the overall evolution as well i mean my dad wasn't a big hunter but he he introduced me to everything right and so i loved upland hunting right Mm -hmm. and then some introduction. He wasn't big into to deer hunting. He had done plenty of that as a kid. And so it was my brother-in-law that would, we would have our one, one annual one day hunt where he would try to get us lost on walkabout and, uh, <laughs> and right. And you were in jeans and, and your oldest pair of basketball shoes. And, <laughs> and, and it was kind of that, okay, here's upland hunting. Here's your day hunt. Here's my brother-in-law getting me into the backcountry. Then, as I as I got older, um, I remember the first time, and it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I'm 46. It was probably I was probably because I was finished with school and everything. So, I'm guessing I was 25, 26 years old because I think my son was was uh, just born. Maybe not quite. I don't know. But I remember buying a cheap backpack and a cheap sleeping bag. And I was going to go kill an elk solo. And I didn't take a tent in. I, if you can imagine this, I checked the weather. I was like, oh, I'm good. And yeah. I went in, I literally cut down a bunch of pine boughs to soften up the ground. And I slept in a sleeping bag on pine boughs because I wanted to get away from people and, and just be, I didn't want to be where the roads were. I had experienced all that as a youth. And so in my mind, I thought, Right. That you could disappear and get away from people and where you didn't find people, you would find animals. It was fairly naive uh, because animals are where they want to be. And it doesn't matter really. I've noticed, you know, they can find their little hidey holes 15 feet from the road, but that was the, you know, that was it. It was just that gradual wanting to be alone and what you find in the backcountry. And I only made it one night the first time out. I mean, I'm 26 years old, but sleeping on pine boughs in a sleeping bag isn't fun. And I, loaded up and hauled out the next day and i I think everyone's had that experience right how much how much did your pack weigh on that first trip i don't even want to know dude i know that i had more food than i needed for the one night that i ended up spending (laughs) and i know that it was the cheapest and the sleeping bag took up the entire backpack almost right i bought a negative 20 bag (laughs) for the first one and my, my dad and i went to cabela's and we dropped a pile of money and we came out of there and we loaded up these Cabela's, I think they were Alaskan guide pack frame, you know, pack frames. And this was like in, oh, 88 or 89, something like that. And uh, it, it might have been a little later than that. But this was the first like really backcountry stay in type hunt that we did. That pack had to weigh 75 pounds, man. And it almost killed us to where we were. I don't think either of us could hunt for two days, but yeah, that's an experience I think that a lot of backcountry boners have have had. Um, oh yeah. 
So my brother and I did that same thing. Our first backcountry hunt, we didn't have a water filter and we knew we were going to need a lot of water. Yeah. So our packs were loaded with water. Oh yeah. (laughs) Biggest mistake. Oh my gosh. Oh man. But yeah, live and learn, right? There's a lot to learn. I'm sure that, you know, you've been doing it for a while now and you've refined your system. Are you, uh, are you a pretty intricate backcountry hunter? Hmm. When you say intricate, do you mean my my gear load, or do you mean I? Yeah. I think how, how pretty... much time do you spend, you know, contemplating and planning what's going to be in your pack and what you're taking on a backcountry hunt? Well, fortunately, the last couple of years I've I've been pretty dialed, but for the first up until two years ago, so for the first 10, 12 years of archery, backcountry hunting. Sure. Whatever it was. Well, no, because I've been hunting. Anyway, I, I've somehow just got comfortable with, okay, the the innovation, the improvement in tents, in backpacks, in sleeping bags, it's not changing enough that I need to continue with, continuously update this spreadsheet. But yes, uh, yeah, we'll, but we'll just leave it as... I have multiple spreadsheets. <laughs> and multiple I do, spreadsheets. I, I could show you right now, you know, we could look through um all of the spreadsheets and and they vary by year because the backpack changed and i wanted to keep the old ones because i have old gear and i want to know what the weight of each tent and each backpack is and all of the other things so that i can mix and match if i decide to but yeah unfortunately i got into it too deep because you (laughs) right and 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 now it's um yeah, it's every year there's there's that one little piece that I'm like, oh, I think things could be ever. I mean, just that's what I love about scouting and archery hunting as well. Off on a tangent here is when I would scout for mule deer and elk leading up to a muzzleloader hunt or a rifle hunt, you have, you know how f- there's a big gap between the time that you stop scouting or the time that the deer, you know, the summer scouting. Now I'm testing gear. I've had a tent fail on me, which failed on me last year. I was going in, my daughter and I, who's 17, no one else in the family would join us because I've, I've run the kids ragged on a few <laughs> scouting trips, family <laughs> yeah. vacations in air yeah. quotes. And, um, one of those, we did 30 miles in two days and I had oh. a, my daughter at the time was 11 and my son. So he would have been 15, something like that. Um, done some crazy things that i look back on i'm like my kids are pretty good kids but anyway through through the scouting season and refine you get the chance to refine your gear right this year my son and i went to colorado for to scout his unit and uh my water filter filter failed and and because i used to be super meticulous to your question danny where man i went through and checked everything off as it went into the pack and i was like we're just going for a you know, a quick bonsai three-day trip. Sure. I know what I need. Boom, boom, boom. I didn't do my checklist thing. So I left my my uh, UV backup water filter at home. Yeah. Yeah. I, I took what I... was going to say, there's, you, you've probably learned through trial and error, there's a few things that you have to have a backup of yeah. because if those things fail, it's a hunt ender. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's one of them. It depends upon where you're at and, and what the situation's like, but you've got to have some way of treating water, you know? So I, you know, as meticulous as I have been, I've let those things lapse occasionally last year. 
I knew my tent was good. I'd used it for years and I like it because it has external poles. You can pitch it when it's raining and not get everything inside wet. Pitch the tent. I'm supposed to be in there for three nights. The first night, my water and I, my, my water, my daughter and I get absolutely drowned and we've got down sleeping bags and I've got an inch, two inches of standing water in the bottom oh. of my tent by morning. Oh. So, you know, after all day hiking, packing in, we load everything up and pack out and drive home. Oh yeah. And then this year I had a water fil filter fail, uh, with my son and I in the back country. And so again, a three to four day quick scouting trip, long weekend turned into one night and out, but, right. um, that's what you get when you lose that meticulous kind of checklist <laughs> right. and you get, and I, and I've become too comfortable, but it, it's a wake up call. I'm glad it happened now instead of when I'm going in for a 14 day hunt. Yeah, absolutely. I've, it, I had a boot blowout one time where my whole foot just came out of the side of the boot all of a, all of a sudden. And I actually got through the next three days of that hunt with a, with a boot that ripped completely down the side and my whole foot hung out just with my little possibles kit and putting together like uh, some zip ties and tying it shut and duct taping the thing and had to reduct tape it every day. But it was, uh, it, it worked, but failures like that are part of it. Um, so tell us about, you know, your other experiences, backcountry, how long have you been backcountry hunting mule deer up in the, uh, you know, above timberline, high country mule deer hunting? Yeah, that was the, I mean, as really, as soon as I picked up a bow and that was part of the appeal. I mean, right. you would, everyone's been there. You go out and you look at a unit in the middle of the summer or in August, I should say, and you can find deer and, uh, do you go back during rifle season and you know generally where they should be, but they're a lot harder to turn up. Right. And so, uh, as soon as I picked up a bow, that's the only place I wanted to be. And right. it's, it started immediately with loading up a backpack and getting it again. I, I had this, this idea that the further away I got, and so I would go on and I would look at all of the trailheads and see where they all ended and where all the roads ended. And then I would circle the spot that was furthest away from all of those. Right. And I thought that that would lead to success. Um, so it began it immediately. Does if there's food there and water. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's the funny depends. thing that I, I have to continue to learn year after year is the deer aren't where they should be on Google Earth. They're where I find them. That's right. <laughs> and I have to relearn that lesson every single year. But yeah, backcountry was just immediately, as soon as I picked up a bow, that's where I wanted to be. And um, it, it did come with. Uh, a lot of trial and error. I can't imagine if I look back now, I'm like, there's, there's two ways to learn it. And I wish that I would have earlier had someone that could walk me through it. Mm -hmm. I ended up later, um, a few years into my bow hunting experience, uh, bumping into a guy that had 20 plus years experience on me. And, uh, he had dropped the the compound bow a couple of years or before that and gone to a recurve. I'm, I don't know if that's an evolution or if that's something that I'm never going it's to see. Is what it is, but <laughs> I know it, a few guys like that. It lingers and, in the back of my mind, but I'll tell you hooking up with that individual yeah. and, and spending time in the back country and then hunting over the years with them. The first year I remember coming off the mountain that short circuited my learning curve by at least 10 years. Sure. He would see things, see opportunities, explain stocks, 
that I didn't see the first four or five years when I was out there doing it myself. All I had, honestly, all I had killed up until that, up to that point was, um, uh, elk, right. Mm -hmm. Bulls and cows for me, they seemed to be easier to come by. I would fill the freezer with cows. Um, and, and I'd killed a few bulls prior to that. I had not killed a mule deer and I had been on many a blown stock. And then it was about 11 years ago that I connected with this gentleman that, kind of took me under his wing and he was super cool. We're about the same age. He's maybe four years older than I am, but he had been archery hunting since he was a teenager. Well, I know a little bit about your career and you've been pretty darn successful since that point. I mean, this wasn't your first big buck. Uh, mm-hmm. t- tell us a little bit about some of the other bucks that you've taken. Um, I, th- I, I don't have a lot on the wall, but I've never in, in 10 years, I've never killed a, a mule deer. And I say this only as a point of reference because I kind of almost hate using a scoring system that doesn't recognize velvet mule deer officially, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it's right. a way that, you know, it's kind of funny. We're, we're a record keeping organization, but you only keep records in a very specific way. Right. And your legally harvested fair chase animal was harvested about a week before it rubbed, so we don't recognize it. So I hate to use numbers like this because that's there's a flaw in that system, but it's the system we use. And I've been right. very fortunate, and I set my I had killed enough deer with a rifle that when you go 10, 12 miles deep, I just from day one I had the mindset that there's no reason to haul anything out here unless it makes my eyes pop out of my head. I'm right. back here for an adventure, for an experience. And what's it's called going... age too. <laughs> like, not, not when I was young, <laughs> I, I was happy just taking anything out of there. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that, you know, after that thing hits the ground, the work begins. And when you're up there, it can be excruciating. So yeah, the things that, you know, I would have jumped on when I was younger, I'll, I'll let them walk by now. No problem. A, a lot of yeah. times it, the further back in I go, the better their chances of survival get because I, I might not even put pressure on the string. Well, it's funny because, and, and so that was always my mindset. And so over the last, uh, uh, 10 years, there are five deer over 190, mm. five oh, wow. deer oh, over smokes. 190. Dude, that's, that's, that is good. Boys and girls <laughs> who are listening to this. The way you become is become the king of the mountain and really successful is learn to use Excel. <laughs> Start building spreadsheets. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's, that's how, how, how it up. begins. That's how it begins, honestly. It is. You know, what's funny about Excel spreadsheets is that's how my top pin ends up at 27 yards, which that's a part, a critical part of, of this story later on. Okay. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, but I've got to go back to the gentleman that somehow through, I don't think we meet people just randomly. The, right. I'm, the, the older I become, the more I realize that I've probably not valued the individuals that I've come across as much as I should. And, uh, because they're not put in my path just by chance. I think there's right. a bigger scheme to things. And, um, if you look at, I look back at when we talk about how this particular mule deer was killed. And everything that led up to it, going all the way back to me meeting this individual that kind of took me under his wing. And, um, I mean, all he, all he knew about me was that I was willing to run around and beat myself up in the back country for 10 or 14 days. 
And that was really the only thing I had going for me. And he, and, and he was very patient. Um, and we've spent enough time together now, but I, I don't think I would have the, this, uh, the experiences that I have and certainly not the deer that I've killed, um, were it not for that introduction and and that friendship that's developed with this more tenured archer. And getting that experience, you know, five deer over 190, when you were putting a stock on a deer over 190 up above Timberline, uh, a lot of bow hunters have never had that opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. they've never done anything like that. The The pressure that comes with that is, is different than any other kind of pressure that I've ever experienced. You know, when you, I always tell people when I'm bow hunting, oftentimes I'm a whole lot better off when something happens instantaneously like i look over here's this buck it and and i don't have time to process it you know what i mean in those situations you are watching that buck typically for a while you are waiting for him to get into a good position for a stock you have hours sometimes to think about this and <laughs> looked at his antlers a dozen times per it's hour a bad deal sometimes so it's actually really good with five bucks in the last 10 years over 190 you have felt that pressure before before you came across this buck and with this buck this is one where you want to have the experience and (laughs) and you want to know how you want to have the know-how to be able to complete this it's one thing to find him it's another thing to execute and get the job done so why don't we why don't we talk about this buck and just take us down, you know, uh, where he was, like, you know, where you were hunting. Um, and, and then did you know he existed? Do you, did you have any idea that he was there? Just tell us a little bit. So with all of my scouting trips, I have yet, this is going to sound interesting, but I can't remember knowingly pinpointing a buck because I'm, I'm driving six to nine hours to the trailhead mm-hmm. for a lot From of my Utah. Yeah. 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 And so, no, we did not see this deer. No, we didn't, we didn't know this deer existed. Um, and so, and we didn't even know this deer existed until I think five days into the hunt. Oh, wow. So you'd been up there for five days. Well, my friend had, my hunting partner had, it was a very unique year. Um, because uh, my son had turned 18, graduated from high school. He, he left us to, uh, to serve a, a church mission for two years. And, you know, it just so happened when we found out the date that he was leaving, as soon as he, as soon as he said where he was going, I knew that I was going to miss opening day of the archery season in Colorado for the first time. And before he even read the date. Because I, I, yeah. And, it, and so I had, I had not in, you know, nine, 10, 11 years missed opening day, the last Saturday in, in August. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he, he was leaving. So, um, I, my friend was back there. He was there for opening day and he, I, I had seen some decent animals cause I'd been able to go in for one scouting trip. I was completing a graduate school of banking program as well that summer. It was just a crazy summer. Right. The way things happen. Um, so I had not laid eyes on this deer. There were a couple of decent sized bucks. I was like, oh, they're going to turn out nice. We'll see if we can turn them up when the season starts. But um, <clears throat> while I was waiting 
for my son to leave to drop him off at the airport and getting in, you know, some text messages via inReach, um, via my friend's inReach, he's like, hey man, dry year. I'm not seeing the number, the quality. They're not, I don't know if they're below timberline or they're just hanging in different areas, but uh, just not turning up the animals that we're, we, we would expect to see. And wow. so that, that's everything going into this. I mean, with as crazy as the summer was. So your hopes the, weren't high. <laughs> no, I had zero expectations going in. And, right. and that's usually the way to go into something. I wanted to cover as much ground as I could. I wanted the adventure. Again, I keep going back to what drives real adventure in the backcountry is when you're looking for the oldest, biggest mule deer you can find. I've looked at a lot of eight-year-old mule deer, seven-year-old mule deer, what I would believe to be the oldest deer in that, you know, bachelor herd. Right. That, that peaked out at like a, a three by four or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. The age does not <laughs> guarantee a massive antler size. Right. So, right. So there's a combination of finding something that's has lived long enough to, to realize its genetic potential and then has the genetics to kick out a, a unique set or a huge set of antlers. And when you're looking for that combination of things in the wilderness, mm-hmm. you're going to go on an adventure. And that's, a, that's, that's the expectation that I had going in was, right. and that's it every year. I'm going to have an adventure because I'm going to be covering a lot of ground and physically, emotionally, and spiritually, I'm going to get everything that I want out of this. Right. And, uh, so that, that was kind of the attitude going in. We looked at, uh, okay, we're going to have to relocate before I even go to the trailhead. I'm going to start off on a different trailhead and go into a different base. I mean, we talked about everything and, um, that was kind of the, the context for I'm going in three or four days after the opener, everything looks bleak. And that, that's the beginning to my 2018 mule deer archery hunt. <laughs> Little did I know what would happen 10 days later or whatever it was, right? So you, you show up and basically go in to where your buddy is and meet up with him or, and, mm-hmm. and, and did, did he know that the deer was there when you arrived? No, he didn't. Uh, so, so there were three of us and, and it's kind of become our thing. It started out, hey, this is my unit. And then I met this gentleman that I really like. And he and I started hunting together and we just bounce around. You know, you can draw the tag one year and then you can't. So you got to go to a zero point or whatever. You know, we're just moving where we got to be to get into the backcountry. And um, and then a good friend of mine that I've known for, I don't know, he moved into the community and started getting into hunting. And I think I introduced him to archery hunting, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. And then now he's hardcore and hunts everywhere and everything he can. But so there's the three of us. Mm-hmm. One waited for me. He lives in Utah, waited for me, uh, didn't go in on the opener, sacrificed the first three or four days of his hunt. Then not only that, I dropped my son off at the airport. We hop in the car, you know, 10 o'clock at night, 1030 and drive straight through the night, get out of the truck, throw our backpacks on and head in with zero sleep. And he pulled the most of the driving. Um, so he was toast. We get into my other friend who's been in there since the opener and he's like, ah, I don't know. You know, let's, let's split up. You you go to this Ridge. I'll go to this Ridge. Let's see what's happening because he hadn't turned up what he was looking for. And he's just looking for a good stalking opportunity hunts with a recurve. Okay. And, and he's, he's looking for just, Hey, any good four point or better, 
that that is has some age on it that's going to give me an opportunity to get you know and he measures his shot by feet his range by feet not by yards sure um but yeah it was just it just started out it was a very uh inconspicuous start to the hunting season yeah it was it was kind of dreary um, yeah and so when did you guys finally turn this buck up how'd that happen so we get in there uh so my friend that drove all through the night took the the meat of i mean he took the brunt of it mm-hmm. and then we like i said throw our backpacks on and hit the trail uh on zero sleep sitting in a truck for umpteen hours and and then you have a full day's hike in um because whether you're we had llamas but whether you have llamas or whether you have or you have it on your back you're moving at about the same pace llamas take the weight but they're not flying up the hill right so if i were to trail run and i've made the haul in in less in about four to four and a half hours just light with a spotting scope and binoculars and trail ran all the way in Mm -hmm. um but uh, under load, you're talking about nine to 10 hours. Mm. So we get in at dark the next day, set up camp, talk about how bleak it looks, spread out. The friend that I drove in with, he and I go to One Ridge. My other friend who had been in since the opener went to, uh, you know, we kind of sp- split up. And we hadn't glassed my friend and I for a half hour and he wasn't feeling well. Mm-hmm. And I, and in a bad way, like this is a guy that's, that's done more in the back country than I have extreme skiing, rock climbing all night, the night and drove all night. We don't drink energy drinks and we both pounded probably three or four energy drinks to make the drive. So we get, (laughs) so the morning just, so now it's the first day of our hunt. I think it's probably the fourth or fifth day of the season. And before I know it, he's, we're walking back to camp and he collapses, literally pukes and passes out. Oh man. And I'm watching this oh, going, man. here's a dude that I, I, I trust. Like if I break my leg, he's going to get me out of there. Yeah. But he's six, four, <laughs> 200 <laughs> to two ten. his uh-huh. fight, his real lean fighting weight for the back country is maybe 200. He wasn't at that weight this year. Right. And I'm looking at my dude laying on the ground. And I'm like, I'm not getting you out of here, buddy. I'm so you're gonna yeah. have to go out under your own power. <laughs> um, he's like, no, no, I, you know, altitude sickness, all those things creep into your mind. Yeah. And I'm like, we haven't even been in here, and we got to head out. We got to drop elevation. And look, he and I both live at 6,500 feet. We spend plenty of time up at 10,000 and above throughout the summer. But altitude sickness can hit you randomly, and I think all of the lack of sleep and the energy drinks. We don't know what it was, but to his credit and maybe to my detriment, because I went along with it, we got back to base camp, which is at like, you know, whatever, 12,000 feet. We call it base camp. But he says, look, man, let's just pop up the lean to the shade tent here and uh, I'll just lay here and I'll give it a while. And we'll, before we decide to head out and he laid there and rolled around and puked and crawled around the rest of the day. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, no, no, we don't need to go out. I'll that start feeling okay. Miserable up yeah. There. Oh, Holy the sun, smokes. the sun at that altitude beating down on him. And he didn't want to get in his tent because he'd have to get in and out. So we just had our little, you know, shade, uh, tarp yeah. put up. And, um, while this is going on, our other friend who'd been in there for a week comes 
bumbling and stumbling into camp, almost tripping over himself physically and verbally. He can't get a word out edgewise. And he's fumbling through his, his, his camera, um, his D, what, DSR. DSLR. Yeah, DSLR. Okay. My mind's blank. And he's trying to tell me what he just saw from the top of the ridge. <laughs> and, and the only thing that I can, the only sense that I can make of it is for a guy who's been hunting mule deer with a bow since he was, you know, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. There was something special going on. Right. 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 And he's saying, oh, at least 240. I can't tell what. <laughs> I, I I can't tell what 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 is brush and what is antler. He's got stuff going everywhere, and that was my that was my introduction to the deer. And you're probably thinking uh, we might have to medevac our other buddy out. You know that talk about things starting in a bleak way, and it, it's yeah. it's crazy how that happens because some of my biggest successes have come on hunts like that where something went terribly wrong in the beginning you know yeah. what i mean oh yeah and it's it's a lesson because it, you might be in there struggling you might be in there struggling mentally physically uh having problems and what it all it takes is that one little thing to turn the tide turn things around it takes 30 seconds sometimes that's yeah, what, things you, turn around quick. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what's so, I mean, look, it's a metaphor. It's a microcosm of life. Yeah. I mean, if you're on this planet for 60 years or hundred years or five years or whatever it is, you're going to have a lot of those same experiences and life in, in, to, in its totality probably looks similar to that. Right. Sure. In its bleakest moment. Yeah. And that's what I love about backcountry hunting. Everything you just described you experience a lifetime of emotions and events and ups and downs in a five day or 10 day or 14 day backcountry hunt. And yeah. the deeper and the, the more precarious, maybe the situation you put yourself in, the more profound the experience can be. The, the mental fortitude that it requires is grossly underestimated by many, many, many people. You combine that, that physical drain um, along with the, the elements that you have to endure and solitude, solitude is something that messes with people. You know, <laughs> it, it really is. And yeah, you know, it's pretty nice for a day or two to most people, I'll, I'll but after what, that you start missing family and you yes. start missing comforts and you start. Yeah. So it's, it becomes an, ex, it, it becomes a spiritual experience. <laughs> It does, it is. you know, um, I, I honestly believe that. Um, so once he finally gets the words out of his mouth, m -m 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 monster, um, you know, what, what was the plan? What, well, that, what that's, what's so, that's what's so amazing. So we've got one guy huddled up that we think we've got to get out of town. Yeah. And, and then my, this, this mentor of mine, that really made it possible for me to bypass a lot of trial and error and, and get me to where I am, um, finds this animal. And then the next words out of his mouth are, Justin, you, you need to kill this buck. You're kidding. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That was the game plan. How much money had you given him prior to this? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's, that's that pretty, just, that's pretty amazing. 
Now, keep in did mind, he find, he, did he show you pictures by now? Have you seen yeah. a picture of him well, by now? Have you ever looked at a picture on the back of a DSLR? I don't care how good the digiscoping is. Um, yeah. And and in, as a matter of fact, just for lightweight, I I don't think he had taken up. No, he had digiscoped this thing. But it's just, I mean, look, it's gray light because this buck, interesting, we'll talk about this. This buck didn't hang out. He didn't let the sun hit his butt. Okay. Right. So it's right. super gray light, very dim. He's in shrubs, pretty decent cover, moving in and out of it. And it's it is it was genuinely hard to say, is that a kicker or is that a branch? Um, you know, my friend had had a chance to look at it through glass. And I was just looking at it on the back of a DSLR. And I was like, okay, that's, yeah, I, I don't know what that is. Was, but... he, was he in the middle of brush or something like that? Uh, was uh, there... It's just that high country stuff where you get some jack pines, you get some shrubs, you get this, that, and the other, their heads up and down, and you don't know what's what when you're looking at a fuzzy gray light image that's digiscoped. Even though right. you've got, you may have a $3,000 body camera and a great lens, right. or in, in this case, he had hooked it up to a Swarovski. So he has a DSLR direct connect to a Swarovski, but in gray light, when you're trying to power that thing up and bring it in sure. it's it's still pixelated i don't care how much money you have in your system it's not you know right. good good lighting right. and so i i could see that there was a lot of stuff going on there and i could see in general that uh, it was hard to to wrap your head around the type of mass that you were looking at right. on that picture and not just chalk it up to shadows and shade and that sort of thing but yeah i think the most amazing thing about that was Here's a guy that that walks into camp having all this experience, knowing that this is the biggest animal he's ever seen on the hoof, and says he hasn't killed, he hasn't filled his tag, and says, Justin, you you need to you kill go this after buck. this deer. Yeah. <laughs> that's a buddy right there. Yeah, I don't know what you call that, but that's next level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a buddy right there. And that um, kind of, I, I highlight that because look, here's one guy that sacrificed all of his sleep and is now puking under a, a tarp right. to drive me to the mountain, right? That's a, th these are the guys that I hunt with. And then here's another guy that finds the biggest buck of his life and says, you need to kill it. Um, me those Jeremy are have hunted together and I'm <laughs> telling you right now, Jeremy would have elbowed me off of that ledge. <laughs> Get out of the way first. No, I'm, I'm playing. Oh, no, man. that is, that's. Man, that's a testament to the strength of your friendship. That's uh, that's something else. I, it's it's unheard of. Um, there, there. Are, I think there's a lot that goes into that. Part of him saying that is he's looking at the situation and the terrain and going in the course of the next nine days or whatever I've got left in my hunt. Am I going to be able to get within stick bow range on this deer? But honestly, I think that was the the least of his concerns. Mm -hmm. When he said what he said, there were there's a, a message there to me because he's watched me walk away from a lot of deer in the past with a little bit of wanderlust and wanting to see what's on the other side of the hill. Sure. Um, and he was saying, don't go. <laughs> and you're not going anywhere else. You need to kill this right. buck. Regardless yeah, this of whether you can 
see what this buck is in this pixelated image I'm showing you. I <laughs> saw him, and I'm telling you, you you were yeah. concentrating on nothing else other than this from this point on is what he was saying to you. Yeah, and I think there was a bit of... So there's the there's the stick bow and can I get into range? There's really just the and, and that's the least of it. Like I said, there's really just the giving. Like man, this is your deer. And part of that I think stems from the fact there was a bit of respect. And there's the there's the backcountry code, mm-hmm. where we were at at that moment happened to be something up a, 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 a an area within the unit that I had introduced him to. Oh, okay. Through okay. through my scouting and my discovery. Right. Um, and I don't know if it was a tip of the hat to that, but all of that comes together. Sure. But I don't care about any of it. I don't know anyone else that that, that packs a bow around the backcountry that's going to do that. Wow. I know friends that would get into fights over who's going to stalk the buck. I don't know anyone that's yeah, just right. going to walk into camp and say, hey, dude, yeah, you need to kill the spot. Oh, my gosh, man. Yeah, that's something else. <laughs> um, it, so at that point, what was the plan you guys devised? You know, do you think anyone else knew about this buck? Did you see any other hunters up there that were, you know, looking for this buck, you think? Nada. So, I mean, the the fortunate part is that particular year hadn't crossed paths with anyone else in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were very comfortable that we had this animal to ourselves. Right. But we weren't comfortable that we were ever going to see this animal again. So after he came back to camp, the very thing, the next thing I did is I went right up to, he told me, perch yourself right here. And just, this is where he dropped off into his bedding cover. Right. And just stay there. And so I stayed there until it was dark and I walked out of there with a headlamp back to camp. Mm-hmm. Didn't see him. Didn't see and so him. we were back at camp that night, kind of like, okay, is this dude like nocturnal and you just caught a glimpse of him at the right time of the morning? And, um, uh, fortunately the, you know, after that, the game plan was just, we're going to plant ourselves on that ridge until my time on this mountain runs out. Did your other buddy recover or did you guys just let him die? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you went back to that. Because cause it's kind of funny, as much concern as I had for him, yeah. once he said, look, man, uh, let me just sit this one out. If, if I still feel like this in the morning, then then um, then we'll get out of here. Right. Once he said that, and and, and my friend showed me the pictures on the DSLR, um, yeah, I kind of forgot about him. <laughs> but, did he get but, better? Uh, he did. So the next morning, he started to get his, you know, get his wind back could hold down some warm drinks and some stuff like that. And then, um, cause as know. miserable as he had to have been, because I've been sick up there you know, in the back country and it's, it's horrible. It, it's the, the conditions are already really tough. You had been sick, especially nauseous. It's absolutely terrible. Can you imagine being the guy that your buddies have just found the biggest buck of their life? And you're sick. And you're, you're thinking, <laughs> and they might have to take you out. I might, I might have to make these guys take me out of here. You know, that's uh, poor guy. I hope you know. I'm sure that he was hanging in there as hard as he could, but hopefully he did recover and got got to feeling better. 
He did. He got well. He got well quick. I mean, you know how it is sometimes when you lose your lunch for a day. Yeah, you feel like a champion two days later, you know, you're, you're fighting weight and, and he seemed to come out of it like that. But I, everything that we're talking about so far, it just is a continued testament of who these individuals are and why I want to spend time in the backcountry with them because, uh, yeah, they're going to sacrifice a lot to make sure that we all have a great adventure back there. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you went to bed, not knowing where he was, what happened the next day, I, I, you said that you three, all three were going to dedicate your time to find, refining this deer in that basin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to an extent. So, uh, uh, we've got one that's still curled up on a, in his tent trying to recover the next morning. And then, um, the guy that found the buck, he and I went back up and fortunately, as you started to get gray light and you could start to make out, you know, forms 600 800 a thousand yards off uh after about i think it was frantic it was frantic glassing typically you try to sit down and calm your mind so you're not buzzing all over the hillside and rolling over the top of things with your glass Mm -hmm. that morning was frantic uh and and we turned him up um and he did not let the sun come over the ridge. Really? He, he was, um, if I remember, it, it seemed that his pattern, if I remember correctly, because he broke the pattern one morning a little bit. I went on a stock, but then I backed out. We talk about that. But this particular morning, um, it was still gray light and he was out. When I say out, he was into cover that you wouldn't go in after him if you had a rifle because right. it was just a fool's journey. You were going to blow him out. Right. But, but we had at least laid eyes on him. So, so yeah. Was he by himself? No, he was with the batch. He was with your standard bachelor herd, but he kind of hung out and did his own thing. Yeah. Um, how, how many he bucks was, in the bachelor group? He was with them, but not with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so close company. And I don't remember. It seems like there's probably at least 12. Okay. So pretty yeah, good I mean, size bachelor group. Plenty of other eyeballs to worry about. Good size group. And, yeah. and, and then you always have, does moving in and out of there and occasionally you'll have some cow elk move in and out of there you know um and that that's but yeah he was out so the next morning we at least laid eyes on him yeah we said okay he's not purely nocturnal we found him two days and um but it, it looked again kind of bleak because it was apparent this the when i got to put glass on him the first time how quickly he was off into deep, heavy bedding cover. Right. And, and you could do a 360 around where he was bedded mm-hmm. and you can't find a position where you're going to be able to consistently lay glass on him, much less find waypoints on a stock down into that crap. I, right. I don't know if that adequately describes it, but he had a nice place to go hide out. Right, right. So, so were the other bucks bedding with him or they, yeah, they so went they a different would, direction? They, no, they would all kind of disperse into this country the way they do and so you would see them here and there um as they would go but they would drop off uh, we actually never did were able to glass them up but i assume based on the way they dropped off into their bedding area that they weren't too far apart yeah <laughs> and in the evenings would those bucks come back out just the, the big guy never would no it's it's kind of interesting because yeah you would see a smaller version or a smaller portion of that group in the evening 
Hmm. And, and I don't know if the others were lingering in a different area that you just couldn't lay glass on, but yeah, you just wouldn't see the whole group out there. Yep. Maybe dropping down to water or something like that. So how many, how many days, how many days did you end up watching this buck and how many stocks did you end up putting on him? Only one other stock. Uh, I think it was the following day. Everyone's recovered. Um, we got back up to the ridge. Uh, so the guy that hunts with the stick bow, he and I went up again because he had found the buck. Mm-hmm. So he was there with me on the ridge. And it was kind of interesting because on that set, on that particular day, the buck held up for just a moment. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, you, you just drop now. You may never have another chance. And that's a tenuous situation because there were a lot of eyes on that morning. There were cow elk. Mm -hmm. There was the, the other, there were the other bucks. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I lost about 700 feet of elevation, first of all, anytime you get ready to do that and you know, the odds of a successful archery stock are slim to none. Mm -hmm. It's just not a comforting feeling knowing that you have to go back up that hill because it's, it's straight up and down. It's kind of like that hill that I described to you guys that I was scouting this weekend. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it is literally, I say, Hey, you know what? I have to drop 700 feet in elevation, but I'm not covering it, covering any vertical distance there. It's, it's almost right. straight up and down. It's hands so, and hands and knees. It, it really is. Yeah. It really is for the first 700 feet. So I, I, I get off of there. And I just go running, trying to get in. I've got the wind right, so I'm okay. And I've got some curls, some some you know some, some terrain features. Yeah. And um, I get about halfway to where I need to be. I'm probably um, I'm not halfway. I get I get within 200 yards. Mm-hmm. And I'm hunkered down, and I'm peeking up over, and I'm looking at my next move, and I can't see anything. Um, I know I haven't blown them out due to sight or due to wind. I can't imagine that they heard me, Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't see anything. And I don't know if it's because they've moved 10 feet or Or gone into their bedding area. If I blew them out. Yeah. But I knew I still had the wind in my favor and I was like, okay, it's not worth risking it from here because if I, if they do win me or they do see me, I may never see them again. Right. So at that point I backed back out. By the time I got to the ridge, my friend with stick bow was gone. He had gone to hunt. Right. He's like, all right, that didn't work. And so it, what, what takes me a half hour to descend literally takes me, you know, an hour to get back up. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, uh, or more. So he's gone and I just spend the rest of the day glassing, trying to work around different angles, seeing if I can pick anything up, find out where they're going, what's going on. Um, and nothing. So I go back to, back to camp via headlamp again. And that went on without the stock. That same pattern went on, I think for the next four or five days. Really? Got to go four or five days. You're you're there for a a 20 minute hunt in the morning and then all day just sitting there in the sun, walking around circles, trying to get different angles. Yeah. And man. And never once did I see him at night. Never wow. once did I see him come out at night. And so, um, by that time, so, um, my friend with the stick bow kills, 
he's because he killed, he has other things that he can and needs to tend to. Sure. So he, so he bails. Um, and, uh, and we're, <laughs> and we're just doing this song, this dance where as the sun comes up, we're scouring frantically for this animal and, uh, hoping that he doesn't disappear. But every day for the next handful of days, it was the same scenario. That guy, it was still gray light. It wasn't good glassing light. It was good enough that you could see who he was. You could make out kind of what the other deer were and say, okay, that's this buck and that's the other buck. But then he was gone. He literally did not let the sun hit him, him in the butt. Right, right. So during all this time when, you know, you still haven't had even a really a successful or an opportunity to really put a stock on him, were you terrified that any time now some other group of guys was going to come over the ridge or come up the trail well you, uh, you, you know hikers or whatever because uh i mean you guys you danny you've been back in there jeremy i think you've been in colorado a lot of times the um the archery elk hunters will wait until the second week of yep. the season before they come in, right? Yep. So there was that concern. I didn't feel like suddenly out of nowhere there was going to be another archery hunters. mule deer hunter come over the ridge because those guys, I mean, <laughs> you know that Hank Williams song, All My Rowdy Friends Have Settled Down? Oh, yeah. That song rolls through my head about the third day of archery season in the backcountry every year because you see a lot of people <laughs> rolling around the day before the opener and the opener yeah. All my rowdy friends have settled down by the third day, and they're all a lot of them. To your point earlier, they've left the backcountry. I don't right. know how many guys spend a year planning for a backcountry hunt and spend all the money on the gear and getting in there, right? And and they pack Stay up for and two leave. or three days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I did it. I, I right. told you, I've done it more than just the one time that I talked to you guys about it. So sure. I wasn't afraid of that, but I was afraid of maybe some elk hunters moving in and bumping some animals around. And I, cause I've seen that every year as well, as well. It's kind of funny where we'll see elk and then you'll see these horse packers come in mm -hmm. and they, they throw up their tents and they put these people in tents and then you hear people start calling yeah. and the elk that we saw the week before everyone showed up to hunt elk. Yeah. Literally disappear. <laughs> yeah. And so th that was a genuine concern right. that, okay, these yeah. guys are going to show up. They're going to start their, you know, their campfires or whatever or it is that they do. Depending upon the area and how close you are to a trail, whether there's all of a sudden hikers come up with a couple of dogs or something. You, you, I've, I've had hunts ruined by things like that too. And when you're, by this time, you personally have gotten a good look at this deer and you probably realize what you're hunting now. Or at least that this is this is a buck of a lifetime type buck. Yeah, to be honest with you, I had no idea. I we we always we were just like ah, it's you know it it's got to go over two forty. What's got enough a buck of a lifetime? A, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Joe is the guy that stayed with me, right? And and he and I are just doing this song and dance. And this is a testament to him. He has a limited amount of time in the mountains. There have been sure. many a times where we're like, hey divide and conquer. Sure. You go hunt your buck. I'm hunting my buck. I mean, last year is a perfect example. He killed was out and I had a three day back and forth with my buck solo, which I love, um, before I finally killed that deer. Uh, but this particular year, it's like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do this thing together. 
mm-hmm. um, and make sure that it goes down. And um, again, he sacrificed his entire hunt. I think that's one of the few years that he's gone in there with me that he didn't kill. Right, right. Because <laughs> we spent all he of our time. You. That's right. We, right. I, I felt bad about that, but I'm very grateful for it. Sure. Yep. Um, so tell us about the day that it finally happened. <laughs> this is when, you know, I, I talked about meeting people and things happen and that are way out of your control. You guys have hunted with a bow and arrow to, enough to know that when it all comes together and then you sit back, you realize that so many things out of your control had to go right Yeah, for it all to happen. And that right. was this day. And it didn't start out like that. I mean, we're sitting up in our glassing point that we'd been on for the last several days and we can't find the deer. But it was actually one of those things that ended up being a blessing in disguise. We can't find the deer, can't find the deer. And finally, when I find him, he's further up above timberline than I have seen him. And he's further away from all the other deer than I'd seen him. Mm. And we had heavy overcast. And in fact, you, when you're back in that high country, you can see storms move into one drainage and you can have a massive storm pass a half a mile from you and it doesn't touch you. I mean, I've been, I remember a few years ago, I was glassing a buck, keeping it pegged while my friend was going. I mean, as the crow flies, that deer was maybe a half a mile away from me. Right. My friend was over there above it, trying to get in on it. And I was making watching where it was going to go and what was going to happen if everything didn't go down right. He got absolutely drenched. I mean, (laughs) complete downpour. And And I was driving, didn't touch me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so, so we're watching that. We have a heavy overcast that morning Mm -hmm. coming back to, you know, this hunt and one drainage to the side, we're watching this heavy storm. Right. And, and this deer is higher than he's ever been, but he doesn't have the sun coming up over the mountain. Right. And I didn't, I didn't realize any of this at the time. This is all in retrospect. Sure. Sure. It's just like, Oh, well, the, things are coming together. And it's only after it's on the ground that I go through and replay everything that had to line up for this to happen. So he's not being chased out by the sun. Right. It's very gray, you know, low, what I call a low ceiling. Those yep. clouds are almost right on top of us. Right. And, um, So again, in retrospect, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what went on this morning while we're glassing this buck. And then this storm that's in a drainage adjacent to us. So this buck, all of a sudden, almost 30 seconds after I finally find him, he's got to be 50 to 75 yards above all of the other bucks in the bachelor herd. And right after I find him, he just goes on a steady walk, a, a diligent walk. And he walks nose down straight past all the other deer. And I'm like, I'm like, uh oh, yeah, he's out. He just realized what time it was, or whatever <laughs> it was. He's late for a he's late for an appointment, and he walked straight past every other deer in his little bachelor herd, and just kept motoring. And we're watching him, and this storm comes through this little saddle in the mountains, mm-hmm. and it comes in and it wreaks havoc on the on the the weather and the current the air currents in that drainage. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he just stops in his tracks, like literally like he had hit a glass wall. Boom. As soon as the air started, as soon as the wind started blowing real hard and everything. 
I didn't realize that's what it was at the moment. Yeah. But then through my binoculars, you know, those snow squalls that you get where nothing actually sticks, but you can see snow blowing oh, yeah. through the air and sleet and that sort of thing. Well, that's what had happened, but it was light enough snowflakes at the end of August up the, at, at that altitude that I'm watching and I'm watching as all of a sudden the wind changes direction. Right. And right. so now what had happened is it, instead of him following and the, the, the shape of this drainage was such that what I realized in hindsight is he was probably following his nose into the wind, right into his bedding area every sure. morning. Sure. And what happened when he was beelining it down and that wind switched wind shifted and he's blind now wind hit him in the butt. And he, so what was amazing is when this happened, he had made up so much ground that he was now a hundred, 150 yards below all the other bucks. Right. He was 100% by himself and he sat there and sat there. And this is what was nice about having Joe sitting next to me because I'm like, if I would have been solo, I may have deliberated more. I may have made the wrong decision and sat tight. Right. Right. But we're kind of going back and forth and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get another chance, but he's still standing up, but he's mm -hmm. standing up chewing his cut mm -hmm. and he's not moving. And it was just a, a weird confluence of events and, and having Joe next to me to say, dude, you got to go. Mm -hmm. That was the final. Okay. Yeah. You know, having him there to give me that confidence, that's a big deal. Sure. In a moment like that, you talked about all the pressure, the, some of the most, the, some of the biggest pressures deciding if and when to go on a stock. Sure. Sure. Right. Yeah. And, and having a friend up there to consult with when you're not making that decision in a vacuum, I think that's huge. Yeah. Yep. So how did you, how did you address all those other bucks above him? <laughs> well, that, that was the. It all just, these are the random events where I have to say the hand of Providence comes into play because you have no control <laughs> over this. Right. I've got to descend that really steep slope. And then I have what we call the football fields mm -hmm. because it's just this big open high country meadow, right? Mm -hmm. With a lot of terrain features. And I'm on a, once I get down to that, I have a lot of terrain between me and him because he's below me in elevation. Mm -hmm. But the bucks that were in the bachelor herd all hung up and they stayed up where they can watch my entire approach. Oh, so they could, it, you, it was easy to get cover from him, but not yeah. from the other bucks. I had an entire, almost, you know, those little mini mountains down in those drainages. I had mm -hmm. one of those between me and him. You sure, know, a sure. big, huge. And so I was on a dead sprint and it came to me as I'm running across there. I'm like, I just want those deer gone. Because mm -hmm. the other thing that I realized is he could not see those deer. Oh, I mean, if he you was looked, over a hill. If you looked at the terrain and the way it dropped off from where the deer were above him. Right. And the significant and steep decline that he had gone down, he couldn't see those deer. He couldn't see me. So but if the, I could if see the, the other bucks see you coming, as long yeah. as they don't run toward him and leave out the back end, he's not even going to know they left. And that's what I realized in the middle of my sprint. Mm. And, and this is what comes to the experience. And you've heard a lot of archers say this. I really believe strongly that there are two speeds. And my, hun, my friend that hunts with a stick bow, mm -hmm. dude, he moves so much faster than you would ever think most right. of the time. Right. There's, there's either like zero speed or full speed. Right. I think when you're stalking, you're either in their window or you're outside of it. And if you're outside of it, you better make hay, you better sure. cover ground. Sure. And I was 
so that's going through my mind. But what you just described, Danny, is exactly what I realized as I was running across there. And I'm probably 300 yards or more from these deer. Uh, no, probably about 500 at that point when it dawned on me exactly what you just said. I need to get these bucks out of here. And so I made a point of my, my angle was to push them Exposing out. Exposing yourself at the right time so that they would leave the, out the back door. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And it, it, I've never had that experience in a, in an archery stock before, but it, you know, it revealed itself in that moment. It's a good thing mule deer don't bark like elk, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> there, Whoop, so, and now everything's gone and the whole, but yeah, the whole hillside's clear. But yeah. so that was one of those, those, another one of those, the weather, being able to see the wind because of the snow falling through the sure. glass. All these things that like, oh, okay, now's the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I got to do this. And the things that opened up on this stock, knowing that, yeah, I'm probably never going to see a deer, much less stock a deer that has this much on its head in my life. Right, right. I never never imagined it was anywhere close to 300 at this point in time, but yeah. well, three, it's big enough, right? It's closer to 350 than 300, but anyway, so, keep going. So, so. You, you, you've got all the other bucks out the yep. back door they left out the back door yep. now it's just you and him did you descend below him and come up where you knew that you know he had he had stopped basically because that wind uh was now coming at his butt and he didn't want to walk down in there blind did you get down below him and come uphill at him well now that's it's a, it's a good question because i've never had success coming uphill at an animal with my bow uh, yet to have that experience, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's elk or mule deer, everything I've killed at best, I've been an, a kind of on Level. a lateral plane with it. Yeah. And mostly, mostly from above. So originally the intent was because of the way the wind had shifted and it was pushing into his butt, right. And which was going downhill on an early gray light morning. Um, I mean, you had to have some weird stuff going on with the weather to have that happen. So the intent was, I was going to keep that big rock outcropping between he and I, mm -hmm. and I was going to drop down to his level, keeping that rock cropping between he and I thinking that I would come out from behind that rock outcropping with the wind still going down, keeping me out, keeping my scent out of his nose. Mm -hmm. And I would come out and be on his level, looking at him somewhere within 70 yards. Yeah. And so I got on this, the, the, you know, the, what I would say the far side of the outcropping or, or away from him far side. Um, took off my boots, dropped my pack. Um, no, I didn't have my pack. I dropped my, uh, my boots. What did I have on me? I didn't have anything. <laughs> I left everything up top. I just untied my boots. I had my rangefinder, and I carry a little pair of eights mm -hmm. because I have 12, 12s that I put on my spot, my, my tripod. Mm -hmm. Then I have a, a lightweight 65 mil spotter. But then around my chest, I carry eight by thirties for weight. Mm -hmm. And I really like having that small Bino, when you're in to a hundred yards yeah. going through cover, trying to make your stock, being able to lift those up. So that's all I had on me, that my rangefinder, And I started to go down on, on my original game plan, but the wind, as I started to move down on that, the, the far side from the deer of that rock outcropping, I could feel the wind coming up into my face. Oh yeah. And I was like, okay, well. I hope he hasn't left because now he has the wind that he always likes to feed off into his cover. Sure. So I went up and peeled around and went over the top 
and came around and then I'm glassing where I thought he was Mm -hmm. and there's nothing there. And I had worked my way down this rock outcropping and it turned into a sheer rock cliff about 20 feet up on my back. So I'm, I'm just nestled up against this thing in the shadows. It's gray. And I'm just sitting there with my binos on my bow, like I'm at a 3d range or whatever. Sure. Right. Just where is this thing? Where is this thing? Um, he's not there. He's not where I thought he should be or where I left him. Right. So you, you had that immediate. Oh no. Oh, he, he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I've got a good wind coming into my face. So I'm not blowing anything out that I haven't already blown out now at this point. So let's just hang tight. Maybe he's staring at me. I can't see him. You know, you always feel, I don't know how you feel, but I always feel like I'm bust. I've already been busted. Right. The, the hardest mental challenge I have anytime I go on a stock is overcoming the tendency to believe that I've already blown the stock and lose my focus, lose my concentration. And once again, in this instance, that was the hardest thing that I had to overcome mentally was not just turning around and bailing out or not losing tension and just walking out into the open and kind of glassing around like, like I didn't care. It happens to the best. And, and no matter how many times I've done it, at some point in every stock, there's a tendency to believe that the animal's blown out, you've already blown them out, and you lose focus. Right, right. And that's where I was at this moment, pinned up against that wall, not being able to see anything. Mm-hmm. But I, all I had going for me was so a good win. Did you just stay there? You Did you just hang tight? So I hung tight, and then I kind of, uh, I moved away. I actually moved away from the wall about two or three feet and and just, kind of laid down because it was steep enough that I could just lean back into the, into the earth. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any real cover. I had one little kind of scrubby dead, half dead, uh, pine, jack pine in front of me. And I'm just kind of sitting there nonchalantly. And now my glasses are now in my, in my bino harness. And all of a sudden I put my glasses up and I see this animal materialized from a terrain feature that I hadn't realized was 80 yards in front of me. Right. It's, it's, it's a dip that you can't even tell is there. There's a little bit of an outcropping. There's some shrubs and all of a sudden I see the nose and the face and the antlers and I'm, <laughs> and I'm shaking. I'm and like, he's, he's 80 yards. So I pull up my range finder and I'm like oh, 80 yards and I put it down and I'm like, uh, I'm not taking any, I, I shoot, I live on just under four acres. Right. I have a target outside my house right now that lives at 110, 115 yards. Right. Yeah. And, and there's nothing that makes me hold steadier than the thought of breaking or losing arrows because they're so freaking expensive. So <laughs> I can, it, at my house, I can hit that, that little, you know, different that, that, when you wrap it in hair, man. And so, and, and 80 yards, I was like, I am not taking an 80 yard shot on this animal. Yeah. But he walks out and he's quartering to me. And in my perception, he's looking straight at me. Yeah. And I was, and so I'm just dead still. I'm pinned. And no sooner does he break all of that cover than he goes plop and lays down. No Quart- way. Quartering to me. <laughs> at 80. Oh, and I'm like, ah, oh. so, so 
there you are. I mean, now how many different options are there? I mean, that's, that's the, the problem is there are, okay, I can kind of try to crab call my way down behind this little scrub half dead jack pine. Yeah. But that's the only cover I've got me, between me and him that's taller than knee high. Right. He's bedded down in roughly knee high stuff because I slowly pull up my eights because I want to see his eye level. I can see his eyes are just below the level of the of the sh- the sh- shrubs that he's bedded in. Sure. So he can see through them, but his eyes are right at that level. But not uh, well. Not well. Not. I mean, I can see his eyes through my binos. That's right. the problem. Right. 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 So. First thought was, I'm going to inch down here and hope that when he stands up, he'll take a few more steps. He'll get within 60. Mm-hmm. But then I was like kind of looking at things and where he had just broken cover from that outcropping and some of those shrubs and then bedded down. If I could move, I don't know, 30 to 40 yards to my right on the side hill that I was on. But all I had was knee high cover. Right. I was on a bare hillside. Right. But if I could move that far to my right, the outcropping that he had walked out from behind would now be between he and I. And so, so yeah. that became that became the game plan. So snake slither <clears throat> over to the right 40 yards and and I, obviously you got to that point. So now did that rock outcropping end up between you two? About an hour later. An hour. <laughs> snake slithering for an hour. <laughs> yeah, I know what well, you mean. Because all it was, was if you look at this buck uh, on a photo, you'll see that the, his backs come really close together. Mm-hmm. And when he would turn and look away from me, dead away where I was in his blind spot because they have that wide field of view behind them. Right. I could tell because I didn't have to put my binos up to check. Right. Because, because I had my binos up once. He would turn, chew his cud, and uh, kind of look downhill. And I could see the way his antlers looked and I could see those shadows at 80 yards in the shrubs. Right. So every time he would turn that way, sometimes I would take a big, like, you know, I would move one foot, two foot to the side. And sometimes I would just be able to wiggle to the side a little bit, but some, sometime about an hour, I covered that distance Uh and, and yeah, I got there and he's totally out of sight. I still, after all of that time, this is the miracle. The wind hadn't shifted. I mean, how, how often can you be that close to a deer and not have the wind shift and have everything blow up on you? Not often, not often, not often up there. Yeah. Yeah. These are the things that when you look back, you realize, dude, this is the the Providence you're talking about so far (laughs) outside of my hands. I mean, yeah. yeah, So, so the wind's still going up at that point. Yep. And and it's getting later in the morning. It should have been later in the morning. Should have been changing. So now I'm like, okay, there's only one wind direction that can kill me at this point, right? And it would have to be an odd swirl that gets down to him. Mm -hmm. I've I've got that going for me. But right now I've still got it coming straight up. So he's here. He's below me. There's there's no chance of it. Right. And and now I've got the outcropping. Um, I know what I had in my my front pouch. Because when I take my boots off, I put on my five fingers. Mm-hmm. This isn't a pitch for them, but man, I can go anywhere in those things in the backcountry because my feet grip and I feel all the trees. They make me quiet, mm-hmm. but I'm not as susceptible. Like I've tried stalking in socks. Yeah. 
a lot of the guys I hunt with do it. I can't do rocks it. and things like that. Yeah. I can't Dude, They'll bring me to my knees. Yeah. So I put these little five <laughs> fingers on that have a four millimeter sole on them sure. or whatever it is, two millimeter. I feel like I'm just as quiet. And so when I get him out of sight, I literally stand up with an arrow knocked and walk around the back edge of that outcropping. Like, like I'm dude, like, I'm just, well, I don't know. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, and I had how, a chance. How long to get did it a, take you to cover that ground? Like a second. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, minutes. there's nothing. I'm not, I'm not stepping on anything. Sure. I'm not, uh, I've got my five fingers on. I've got perfect ground cover. That's not loud. And I literally just walk around to the top of that outcropping. And there's two big evergreens at the end of it. Right. That are, when I say big, they're nice and full, but they're maybe only 14 feet tall. They're not full, big, massive ones, but because they're so short, they're super full. Right. And so I know he's right there somewhere at the end of the outcropping and I peek out to the edge of those things and I can see his right side. Okay. How far? And 26.3 yards. Oh, <laughs> and is he dude. looking away from you? He's still at an angle where those trees are covering. And so where he was kind of quartering to me slightly when I was up above him earlier, now that I've wrapped around and I'm, and I'm up and he's basically quartering away from me hard, quartering okay. away. Hard, so, yeah. yeah. So if he, all he has to do is turn his head a little to the left mm -hmm. and I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm right there. Right. At, right. At 26.3 yards. Right. Well, now the big dilemma. <laughs> do you wait him out or do you do something like toss a rock? What did you do? And you ask good questions because I've been down all of those roads before. Me too. And <laughs> it's a hard it's a hard decision, man. I've so had it, <laughs> I've had both go bad. Oh, <laughs> uh, I have on film. I have, man, uh, a buck that I tried the rock thing at and I had read. I was sitting there and I was like, Randy Ulmer says, don't throw rocks, right? These are the things that go through my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I had had in the past some bad experiences and it has always worked out with me as long as the, for me, as long as the wind is holding, dude, if, if let him holds. make the mistake, let him make the mistake. Right. 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 And, and so at 26.3 yards, you talked earlier about the tension that builds on a stock like that. Oh Yeah. My experience has been that whether I've stood in place for a couple of hours waiting for a deer to come out, mm -hmm. which I've done that, uh, I have my 194 buck, man. We'll, we'll talk about that another day. Mm -hmm. um, but my experience had always been that it doesn't matter how much time I have to make the shot. Mm -hmm. By the time the shot actually comes around, I'd been within range of the buck so long that the tension disappears. I mean, you know, the, the all the deer on my wall, I can just go back to, okay, I've been inside of a hundred yards that's on just, this. That's, those are personality traits. That's, that's something that is instilled in you by <laughs> no, God. Because no, not, not everyone is built that way, man. Not everyone's built that way. For me, it's a detriment. It's horrible. Okay. It, it's, it's meltdown city. The longer I have to think about something, but, and, and, and that's my struggle for, I wish I was the type that, you know, 
oh, okay, now all I've got to do is make this 26-yard shot, patoom, you know. No, that that isn't me. If it if 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 that's what it's like for you, God bless you, man. So so let me finish <laughs> my story because in all other instances, mm-hmm. it's it's a bit like, okay, I've been here long enough, my heart's come down. Because look, when he walked out at 80 yards, I was shaking trying right. to put a rangefinder on him, right? Right. But now he and I have been, we're close buddies. We've been inside of 80 <laughs> yards for, for an hour now, right? Sure. <laughs> and so I've had a chance to call myself. Well, that was been that had been my experience with all other deer. Yeah. Right. I had closed the distance and the time from the, the from the time that I closed the distance to the time that the shot presented itself, enough time had elapsed that I was in a really good state of mind. Okay. This particular deer, when I saw 26.3 yards, mm-hmm. dude, the adrenaline kicked back up through the ceiling. That hadn't <laughs> happened to me in the past. Yeah. Because I'm looking at his right side. And if you look at his right side, he's got a freaking two kickers coming off his right side oh, on the back. Yeah. And one of them, when it was full of blood and all swollen before the shrink time frame, right. one of them was as big as my right hand. Oh. I mean, I have pictures of me laying my right hand over that big dropper on his right side where, you know, it is just huge. So, so this is what I'm looking it's a classic, at. classic, don't look at the antlers thing. Don't look, <laughs> don't think about them. And the other thing, I've got to, I've got to take you back in time because... My top pin is set at 27 yards. Mm-hmm. And I've shared this with people. Mm-hmm. But you, how often do you shoot an animal at your pin settings? This is the only time it's ever happened for me. Unless I'm using <laughs> my bottom pin as a slider and sliding it to the exact yardage. Usually I'm gapping. Right. Because the first, I mean, so I walk out and I hit 26.3 yards. When I walked into camp and my buddy, the stick bow hunter, was there waiting for us, and we set up camp, and he says, how you doing? I said, dude, it's been a hectic summer. All the things that I told you guys about earlier, I said, I'm good to 27 yards. That's it. (laughs) That was famous last words the first day in camp. Wow. And so when I ranged him at 26.3 yards, I had my face mask on, and I had a smile I mean, that's when the adrenaline shot through me. I'm like, this is crazy because a, I don't know of any other archer that sets their top pin at 27 yards. Yeah. The reason I started doing that is because it covers a nice gap. Sure. And it creates a bigger gap from 27 to 40 than from 20, 30, 40. Right. Right. And then my bottom pin, my slider is at 70 instead of at 60. If I go 20 to, you know what I mean? So I started doing that years and years and years ago. And the biggest buck I've ever seen in my life is now right at your top, <laughs> right at my top pin, pin right <laughs> at my top pin. So then I had to calm myself down a bit and I, I just kind of shimmied out from behind those evergreens. Those evergreens are at the end of the outcropping. So they're whatever, they're probably 20 yards mm-hmm. away from me. And I'm just, now I'm in full position And I honestly had to keep walking through in my mind mentally what I do almost subconsciously in my front yard Mm -hmm. is, okay, okay, I've got, I've got my, my hand up in the throat of the grip right where I want it. And I'm just, I am almost out loud going through my shot sequence to keep myself calm. Okay. I've got tension on the string arrows knocked and I'm just going to sit here in this ready position until his antlers bob 
and he gives me the sign. Right. And then I'm going to draw at the same time that he stands up. And I hope that there's a shot there when I come to full draw because sure. there's, I can't see anything that prevents it. Right. Right. And so it's interesting because here I am at my top pin yardage. And I'm like pretending like I'm at a line at an archery range, mm-hmm. just getting everything yeah. queued up perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Cause your cause feet positioned perfectly. Yeah. Any other thought, and I'm a train wreck. Yeah. Because <laughs> for a moment, I let those antlers go through my head, and I'm like, "You cannot screw this up. Yeah. You can't screw this up." Because the friend that gave you this opportunity, right. I mean, I mean, you're never going to see this opportunity again. You're never going to see a deer this unique again. And as soon as I started to think like that, it was game over. So I had to go back to, okay, just here's the shot sequence. That's a target, right? And I had gone through that in my head. I don't know how much time passed, man. It could have been a minute. It could have been 10 minutes, but it seemed like the blink of an eye. And he kind of, he did the head bob where his antlers started to move so he could come up. How long was it? How long was it that you don't, you don't have any concept of it? I have no concept of time. I don't know if I stood (laughs) back there at 26.3 yards for literally for 15 seconds. If all those things flashed through my mind, or if I was standing there for five minutes, it's just right. But when he, I just, when he gave the head nod, Mm -hmm. I came to full draw and I was far enough out from behind the, those evergreens that he, he caught it. Okay. And he went, he caught the movement of you coming to full draw. He caught my, he caught my movement and he, he spun his head, but he kept his body position and he was quartering hard. The other part problem was that one, he, once he stood up, there's this really dense shrub mm-hmm. right at the end of the outcropping mm-hmm. like right over where i would like to have placed my shot so i have in that instance i lean forward and i'm at the very front of the shoulder and i lean back and i'm at the back and right mm-hmm. sorry i lean back and i'm at the front shoulder right and i lean forward and i'm on the back rib mm. you know it's just that lean of the waist right. back and forth and it's a split second but it's like with how hard he's quartering right the instincts kick in. I lean forward, back rib, boom. Hit right where, <laughs> did you see the arrow impact? I thought I did, but as soon as he bounced away, I could see the blood, mm-hmm. right? And he bounced about five feet and kind of stopped and then bounced away. And so at first I was like, oh my gosh, I just I just ripped out his liver on the onside. I went through his lung on the offside. That arrow blew through him so fast. It it sounded going through the shrubs on the other side like I'd missed him. That's how hard that arrow went through him. Wow. Now, wow. I, was, I was shooting fixed blades for the first time in 12 years. That year, I had gone to a really heavy front of center setup right. with these big, massive fixed blade heads. And when that arrow ripped through that buck, I was like, if I didn't see the blood on that back rib, mm-hmm. I would have believed that I missed him the way it sounded ripping through the trees on the other side of him. Right. <laughs> but then, as is always the case, you just start to doubt yourself. <laughs> what did, yeah, did, doubt just creeps in. <laughs> Real quick, what was your what was your setup? Real quick, your 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 bow setup. Yeah, yeah. So I had my I that year uh, I had the carbon defiant thirty four. 
Uh, and I hate switching bows. I think I'd been shooting that bow since I could get my hands on it since it was released <laughs> yeah, because redoing a, a setup. Oh, it, it was. <laughs> and it pulled at 73 pounds, which I love because it, it, it just has a little bit more at the, at the wall to hold. Um, yeah. And then, uh, just a, a two, because I had gone with a heavy FOC front of center that year. Um, I was shooting a 250 spine. Okay. Uh, four, four millimeter arrow. Okay. Um, that spined out right out of that bow with a heavy, like, dude, I was tipping the scales at like 29 inches of draw with 550 grains in my arrow oh, and wow. 20, and, and I measured it to the point. Yeah. You know, it was 20% FOC. Wow. And I had built that. And I really liked the way it performed, mm-hmm. not past 50 yards. That was the other reason when right. I walked out at 80 yards, I was like, it ain't happening. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking this shot at 80 yards because those big fixed blades, they, uh, I thought my bow, I'd know my bow was tuned money, mm-hmm. but those shoot different past 50 yards. And, right. and, and I had not shot fixed blade heads for 10, 12 years. So I wasn't going to take chances, but anyway, it worked out and it just so happens that fixed blades rip through animals. Uh, I love mechanicals because they are so pinpoint accurate. Right. And I've yet to have a bad experience with a mechanical. Right. Um, uh, I have, I sh- <laughs> but, <go ahead. laughs> but, but this particular year, anyway, this thing ripped through them. And part of the doubt that crept into my mind was the fact that that arrow did not sound like it hit a deer other than that nice, yeah. Did you get when you pop the th- pop the lungs? But then you heard the clang, 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 clang back there behind Yeah. It. Whereas when you shoot a mechanical through a deer like that, you'll hear the lungs pop. Right. And then you don't, you may hear the arrow tumble, but that arrow lands base ends up basically one on yard on the other side of the, of the animal. A lot of times. The, the saddest part to me, and I go back, I've been back a couple of times. I was not able to recover my arrow. I want that arrow so bad because <laughs> it just ripped through everything. Right. Sure. I mean, I don't know where that arrow ended up. Sure. He was only 26 yards away. That arrow could be 70 yards downrange. So now he's bounding away. And yeah. if it weren't for the blood that you saw at the back rib, you didn't know whether you hit him or not, but now you do know you hit him. And how far did he go? And what were you feeling? What were you thinking? So, there was a lot of tension because I had never shot an animal that far back quartering away. I've had some nice quartering shots, yeah, but I was able to catch both lungs. Right. I knew for a fact that best case scenario, I caught liver on the onside and lung on the offside. So animals can go a long freaking ways with a liver shot in one lung. And so I was stressed. I was really, but he dropped off another level that probably lost 50 to 70 feet of elevation, boom, right off the bat. And I knew where he was going because I was still up on a, a, a level above him, if you will, in the same area. Right. And so I actually ran around and got up on some, what they were, they were cliffs, you know, 15, 20 foot cliffs and came through some timber out onto these cliff edges to see if I could see where he had gone. And when I came out, he had gone about a hundred yards straight downhill and he was laying in some shrubs, but he hadn't died yet. 
So just a few, you know, it, it wasn't like I was standing there for five or 10 minutes and then like, Hey, let's, let's go see what's happening. It right. was like, I actually have a window here where I can put another stock on stock on this buck if he hasn't totally bailed off the end. Right. So I went around and I came out on those, I came through the timber and just crept out and peeked up and he was laying down head down and I ranged his antlers, but I couldn't get an angle. He was 50 yards below me. And I, and I was like, I need to put another arrow. I need to put another arrow in him. And I, and I was trying to get an angle where I could actually get an arrow in him where he was laying, but he was laying side down, like trying to lift his head up. He was done. Right. 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 And by the time I was like, I watched him lift his head up and then I, I watched him just put his head down. And I was like, I think, I think, it, I think it's over. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So walking up on that thing and actually looking at him, um, what was, what was that like? I, I so <sighs> it's crazy because I went down to the deer and I was, I was incredulous. So here I've got these fixed blades and I, I mean, you know, when a deer's died, yeah. but I'm still walking up on this deer <laughs> with one arrow knocked and one arrow in my off hand. And I'm poking him in the butt with a fixed blade. And I'm like, it's, it's really done. Like really done. <laughs> yeah. I put the, uh, put the other arrow on my quiver, took the other arrow off my, off my rest, put it in the quiver, set my bow down. And I, kind of circled around him the way he was curled up in the shrubs and the brush. If you've ever seen, I've only posted one photo on Instagram. And if you've ever seen it, that photo is right where he died. And we've got some meat bags in the, and my friend is down there with me. Joe's down there with me at that point. And all you see is the antlers totally caped out. And you see a meat bag here, a meat bag here, and you see some shrubs. And those are the shrubs that his head was laying in. Right. And I just, I set my bow down and I circled around him. And I was overcome with the fact that this was so much bigger than me. Like literally in that moment, I was like, this is a really, really unique animal. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how this story ends, but I was kind of like, this story hasn't ended. Right. Right. And I, and I didn't know why. I didn't know how. I didn't think it was 348 inches. I thought it was 240, right? It just has a lot of stuff. Yeah. But, and, and I'm Which not is a, a huge difference. I'm not a good I'm not a good judge. 100 inches. That's, I, I, you just knew you know when they're who would, when they're giants they're giants. You're right. But I circled around him and then I was like, you know what? Joe's up on the hill. He's seen the whole thing go down. He's going to grab my backpack and come down. I set my bow down. I did not go pick his antlers up out of the trees. Yeah. I let him stay there because I wanted Joe to be there when, you know, we moved him around and I held him for the first Joe time. Joe almost died the first night. So th it's nice of you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he sacrificed his, almost his entire hunt so that we could kill this thing. And yeah. uh, so I set everything down and I walked way back way. I mean, it was a lot of vertical feet yeah. to get back up to where my boots were. Yeah. Um, got my boots on. And then while I was waiting for Joe, I, I went and circled and circled and circled looking for my arrow. Yeah. And, um, and then I could finally see him coming down and, and we were, you know, about a hundred yards apart and went down and, and met at the deer and I right. whistled him into the deer and, 
then he got there and we just kind of kind of moved him out and then we started to be like counting things and looking at because every time you moved him you would have a new perspective and you'd be like oh my gosh look at that point right uh, oh what does he have coming out of here like there's there is no angle the reason i posted that photo on instagram is because a it's the only photo because I don't know what I want to do with Instagram, but I put something out there. Right. And and B, <laughs> it's the one photo that you look at. And if you zoom in on that photo, you're like, wow, there's stuff going everywhere. Sure. And there's, you can't get a perspective of this buck. So we just sat there in awe going, this, this really just happened. <laughs> and this, this deer is the most funky thing you've ever seen in your life. Now, did you, uh, <laughs> Number one, I've 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 heard people speculate that that might have been a cactus buck. A cactus buck is you know slang for a buck that had a uh, an injury to his testicles uh, or something like that that affected testosterone levels. Um, were there any obvious injuries to this deer that caused uh, you know a crazy ant antler configuration like that? No, and we were so interested in that. I mean, from the day we laid eyes on him the first time we all sat in camp and speculated about what happened to this deer. Right. Right. Did he jump a fence and rip off one testicle or both testicles, or right. does he have some other hormone issue or did he get jacked up in a car accident during winter migration or something? And, and this is how his antlers evolved as a, as a, as a result. But what was interesting is he had good blood flow. So I never looked at him as a cactus because every cactus buck I've ever seen, They've they got that shed their velvet usually a lot. Yeah, and they've yeah, got this nasty like, velvet, yeah. mad clump of nastiness at the bottom. Yeah, and then who knows what's going on around it. Right. And so this buck had this buck, I believe, would have shed its velvet. Okay. Right. And you so look it, at the it looked veins, like healthy velvet. Yeah, and and then the very first thing that Joe and I did is grab the hind legs, and we're like, "Well, he's got a full set." Yeah. Yeah. So that's not what's wrong. Right. This guy's had something wrong, right? Right. We There was nothing physically about him that would indicate. That you could identify. Yeah. Why he ended up the way he did. Did either of you have any idea that you were sitting there looking at the largest buck ever taken by a bow hunter or the, 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 the highest scoring mule deer ever by a bow hunter? That, I mean, that, it, like I said at the beginning, wrapping your head <laughs> around that is something else. Um did you have any idea? No, I was stoked out of my mind to break 200 inches because what's really interesting is that the deer that are over 190, that's kind of my benchmark when I go into the backcountry. Mm -hmm. is it's tough to find a buck that's going to score 190. And so we talked about those deer earlier and I, and I have, I've got one that's 199, 194, <laughs> right? I had not clipped 200 <laughs> inches. Right. And so, so I was just like... 240. I finally yep. made it. <laughs> I made, I made 200, right? That's it. That's as much as, that's as much as we could think about. Yeah. 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 That's, oh man, that is something else. So describe the buck now. Um, how many, how many points does he have? And like so, you said, right now, I think that's the, is, is 348 the final score or is it, is it a preliminary? I think 348 will be the uh, the last score that he gets. Um, I was I was on the fence with that. When you look at him, he, so to describe the deer, he has 47 scoreable points. Holy Moses! 47. So 
two Holy. two different two different Boone and Crockett scores. Uh, Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young. So okay. they're both official Pope and Young scores. Um, two guys have scored it. One came in one day. I got to tell you that story later. And the other came in, you know, a couple days later because it was just so radical. So they they sat down together. Right. First first time I think he spent three or four hours with it. I don't remember. The second time I wasn't there and there were two of them and they spent another three or four hours with it, scoring it. And, and they this just is, this is after the sixty day drying period. Yeah, this is this is heck. This is this is when I found out what it was. But you know, as we're sitting there on the mountain and we're just kind of counting things up and looking at it, look, it's just it's a super unique buck because instead of going out and up, it goes out and in. It's inside spread is actually quite phenomenal. I think it's got that. I, I don't have the sheet in front of me, but it's got a, you know, I don't know if it's a 24 or 26 inch inside spread, something right. that, that you would not think looking at it because as soon as it hits that max he, inside he spread, wraps. he wraps into where his tops almost touch. Right. And so he doesn't have this wow factor that a lot of mule deer have where they go out and up. Right. I think, I think if this buck went out and up, you would have a lot more people going, that's an amazing deer. Right. Now you have people walk up and go, that's weird. <laughs> that's, that's, that's 348. And then they walk, then they walk around it because what's cool is on his right side, like I said, he's got double droppers coming off the back, right? Sure. And one of them is about as big as my hand with three, three or four points coming off of it. Wow. And then he has a big dropper coming off the back left. That's another, I don't know, 12, 14 inches long. Wow. Um, his his left side looks a little bit more typical, mm-hmm. and then his right side looks like a just a big massive um, G two with a lot of crap coming out of it. But the mass, I mean, I just when he was still swollen before the drying period and everything, you know how they are when they're in the velvet. Sure. The mass on him, I mean, I'm not huge, but just it's as big around as his my forearms clear up where he splits where he forks right right not my wrists my forearms yeah enormous enormous um Uh, just cool where can people see pictures of this buck Hmm. that's a good question (laughs) there's a there's that that photo i honestly don't know on the, (laughs) the photo on the cover of western hunter magazine um and what issue is that i know it's issue it, it is uh um uh it's number 69 the yep. uh it is uh number. it is yeah it's may june of 2019 may june of 2019 um and i know that i saw uh some pretty cool pictures uh that joe must have taken a view up on the side of the mountain um yep. on a black ovis website um, yeah that that one picture was the mind blower and i didn't I didn't really see that or look at that picture a lot on his phone right. until four or six months after the hunt. And we'll sure. talk about that, the aftermath of this whole thing. Sure. But the one where I have it on my backpack and I'm hiking out, it gives you some perspective that you don't get looking at it on a mount because you see from the skull plate down, it hangs all the way down to the bottom of my backpack. You got stuff coming everywhere. And there are a lot of people that look at that photo and they're like, they're like that, that looks like a caribou almost. Yeah. Yeah crazy so that's the first thing i thought when i saw that picture well and caribou to to me every the pictures that i've seen of it i i know what you're talking about where people probably walk up and look at that the mount of that buck straight on and they don't get the it's truly a buck that you've got to walk a circle around you got to get a 360 degree view up because there's so much going on 
Yeah, just points so everywhere. much going on. So what has that? You mentioned the aftermath. What's so the real aftermath? quick, Danny? Let me let me answer your question, Danny, about where can you see this buck? Oh, yeah. Um, because there's posters. We did a full size poster and sent to every Hoyt dealer in the country. <laughs> so this buck, this picture of Justin and his buck should be hanging in every art, Hoyt archery shop in the country. If you haven't seen it, go to your archery shop, take a look. But also, if uh, if Justin's good with it, we'll when we launch this podcast, we'll post on so on Instagram and Facebook, you know, about the podcast, and we'll, we'll probably show a picture again there. So because uh, you got to see the pictures, Maybe it's, just add a little it's montage unreal. of of photos. Like I haven't seen I, yeah. one particular photo that does the buck justice. It's it's more of a uh, once you see six or seven photos, you're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting you say that when the with the aftermath and everything else when it was we were going to put it in the western hunt expo um i was like the only way anyone's going to really appreciate this deer is if we put it on a gyroscope and it sits and turns upside down so you can see it from the top <laughs> because if you look at it from the top down uh, on its left right side it, it has a like a trident point but it's got a whole basket it's got like 10 points coming off the top with that are all like three to four or longer. And then like this basket up top. Sure. Um, you can't see that on any photo or you can't even see it when you're looking at it face on or from the back of the mount, you have to turn it and you're like, Oh my gosh, what's going on up there. It's a, it's just that crazy of a deer, but, uh, yeah. What a thing, man. Um, congratulations. Uh, like I said, just, wrapping your head around that fact that this is the highest scoring mule deer ever taken by a bow hunter is, is, is something that's just astronomical. I can't, I, I don't know how you must feel, but, uh, any, any, I, any final uh, thoughts on this? I mean, well, we, it, with this podcast, we usually have a goal of sticking to around an hour. We're like, an hour and 50 minutes and part of it's because i <laughs> i want every bit of detail on this thing because it's such a cool story such a cool buck yeah. such a it's been tremendous awesome accomplishment story. yeah guys i uh, and i appreciate the 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 accolades i appreciate your kind words um this has been interesting though i i, I talked about a feeling that the, this wasn't over when when we caped it and quartered it and hauled it out of there right sure and even though I had that sense, when I dropped it off of the taxidermist, the taxidermist walked out. It was one of the guys that works at the taxidermist shop that I know. Uh, his name's Ross, and he walked out, and he's like, oh, how does it – I mean, he was his eyes popped. And he said, how does it feel to shoot a 300-inch buck? And I just thought, you know. You're still thinking 240. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he, he's joking. <laughs> I hand it to him, hop in my car, and drive away. You know, this is in September. Yeah. And, um, later I find out when I go back to have the Pope and young guy measure it, I find out that Ross immediately called the owner of the taxidermy shop and was like, dude, what are we going to do? This, this buck is silly. Um, one other people that know mule deer, like my friend that shoots a stick bow, uh, he knows Randy Ulmer. I have Randy Ulmer's 
phone number, even though Randy probably doesn't know I have it. <laughs> but no, he and I met for lunch one time years ago because I wanted to pick his brain and I just had the 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 luxury, the 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 privilege of meeting him and sure. and and asking him some questions. So as soon as we could get the cell phone coverage, um, we got a, a a photo out to my friend who had actually found the buck, turned it up first. And he the one of the first people that he sent it to was Randy Ulmer. Yeah. And Randy Ulmer, within minutes of seeing that photo, text back and said, that's new world record. I had never looked at that buck and thought that, but Randy knew what he was looking at somehow. Sure. sure. Well, so there was that, that knows big deer. <laughs> that is the man. So there was that little incidence of the text. And then I'd never thought about it because I didn't even go Google what is the world record archery buck. Then I drop it off and the guy's like, Hey, what's it feel like to shoot a 300 inch buck? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then a few months pass and this art, this, this taxidermist is a guy that with the bucks that I've killed in the past, they're big enough. They're nice enough. He'll put them in his uh, display at the Western hunt expo every year. So I've had a handful of deer in his display at the expo. And, um, I was just thinking to say, Hey, this thing's big. It's super unique. And the benefit that I get is I hand a deer off in September and I get it back in February when the expo's over. So I don't wait a year for my tax ceremony. Like, like, (laughs) right. Exactly. So that's all I care about is I'm going to get my deer back. And he calls me, you know, four or five weeks, I think before the, uh, the Western hunt expo. And it's like, yeah, I think you ought to get this thing measured. And I, I'm thinking, Hey, just measure it. You've measured all the other, you give me a green score, tell me what it is and let's put it in your booth and then I'll come and get it. Sure. And, uh, He's like, no, you, if this just shows up at the Western Hunt Expo in my booth, you're going to have questions that need, that people are going to want answered. And I don't think you want, you want to lead the story here. You don't want the story good to be point. told because yeah, there's going to be way point. too much. And I had never even thought about that. So I was like, okay, set me up with a Pope and Young measure. And so he called one in. He's like, you know, I thought, okay, it'll be cool to be down there. So I show up at the taxidermy shop four weeks before the expo, you know, in 2019. And uh, we spent about three or four hours there and buy lunch and everything. And to show you that I didn't wrap my head around it, even when I found out the first score, I won't even tell you the first score that came across on the sheet when he added them up. Because he slid it across the table and just kind of scratched his head, the Pope and Young score. <laughs> and we both looked at the number and I was like, well, yeah, that's big. Right. And in my mind, I was thinking the first number on that series of three digits was a two. <laughs> so in my mind, I'm just like, oh, 266. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's bigger than oh, I thought. Their score was 366. Yeah, the first time he had spent three or four hours with the buck, and the first time he came out, he's like, add it all up, man. This is where it's at. And so so about a half hour later, the taxidermist is like, hey, I want to call Ross because he's really interested. And and they're going back and forth, and he kind of chuckles, and he says, hey, Ross wants to make sure that it's 366, not 266. Right, yeah. And that's the first time after having looked at the score sheet and <laughs> – talked about the score for a half an hour that's the first time i realized we were talking about 300 and something 
And then a few days later, uh, the that Pope and Young score brought another Pope and Young score into the shop. I wasn't there. They spent a couple of few hours with it and they called me and said, look, here's what we think is the most practical conservative score. You know, you could count this as the main beam or you could count this as the main beam. You could count this as the G2 or this is the G2. And we think we've taken a conservative approach. The net is 348 and I think five eights and the gross is 338 and seven eights or something. Sorry, vice versa. The gross is 348 and something and the and the net is 338. Which is bigger than any bull elk I've ever killed. Um, yeah, same here. <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh but my gosh! It just, I, I share that story just because the, at no point in time did I realize, and even leading up to the expo, when the guys from Black Ovis were kind of helping me, hey, how are we going to tell this story? Because we don't want this to just show up at the expo. Yeah. And I was like, maybe we don't do the expo thing at all. And the, the taxidermist is like, if you don't want people to find out about this and where you and and be interested in who you are and where you hunt. Mm-hmm. then just take it home and throw it in the dumpster burn yeah. it yeah because if this ever sees the light of day yeah, yeah. it's going to come out um and people will make stories will up speculation so yeah. so the guys from black ovis kind of helped me put together a way to take it to the expo and and sure. that whole experience was just kind of surreal because yeah i was there for the hunt and now i look at it on the wall and i'm like doesn't well, man, up. I'll tell you what the coolest part of this story is to me. Um, one of the things that you always dread potentially happening is see somebody take an animal like this and you ask them, you know, uh, how long you've been bow hunting? Two years. And, you know, <laughs> how'd you take him? Well, uh, we uh, walked up a trail. He stepped out in the middle of the trail and I shot him or something like that. But, you know, it, the animal spectacular, regardless of, of who takes him and, and deserves, uh, are to be honored regardless of, of who took him or, or by what method. However, it is really refreshing to see that the guy that took him is a serious bow hunter that has put in his time. That's taken the, uh, the time to refine his skills. And, uh, once again, congratulations to you, buddy. Uh, I don't yeah, think it could no have happened to a better guy. Um, yep. That's what I was going to say, Danny, is when earlier when Justin was talking about his hunting buddies and what good people they are yeah. and how they're the type of people he likes to be around. Yeah. Well, it was, it's kind of no surprise because through all, you know, my interactions with Justin, and, um, you know, I find out that someone shoots this giant buck with a Hoyt and you should call him. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've had I've made those phone calls before and it turns into what's Hoyt going to do for me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and they're just not fun conversations, right? So sure. I didn't make the call. I didn't make the call. And then this this letter lands on my desk. It's a postcard type letter. I open it up and pull it out and it's a it's a nicely done postcard with pictures of the buck and Justin saying, you know, dear friends at Hoyt, um thought you might like to see my buck, um, so grateful for, you know, the awesome products you make and that, uh, you know, I can rely on your products in the back country. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then it has his phone number. He's like, you know, call if you want to talk about it and sure. love to share my story type of thing. I'm like, that's pretty cool. I've never got that before. So anyway, we did end up talking. Um, we had the idea to do a internally at Hoyt, we had the idea to do a poster 
And I'm thinking, well, here goes that conversation again. Like, yeah, you can do a poster. What's in it for me? And, but I, but I really want to do a poster. So I call him and we talk and he's like, absolutely, man, knock yourself out. I'll send you a Dropbox link with a bunch of photos and pick the one you guys like and do the poster. Thanks for thinking of it. And I'm like, wow, that went really well. And, uh, and just several things like that. You know, we had another idea to do an ad with it and I'm like, well, we're going to, he's probably, he's probably about done with us using him for free. So when I call to ask about the ad, he's going to be like, Hey, what's in it for me? And, <laughs> and he, he said yes. So quick. He's like, absolutely. I'd be honored, you know? And, and so that's been my experience with Justin. He's just been, he's been humble about it and he's been willing to share the buck with the world and uh regardless i'm sure he's getting i'm sure there's lots of haters and i'm sure he's had to put up with you know just people who who want to speculate and hate um but regardless he's been just willing and excited to share that buck with the world and in a humble way and and uh so it's no surprise that his two hunting buddies are that type of people and the third hunting buddy in that group is obviously that type of person too so it's uh couldn't have happened to a better guy. Yeah, I I totally agree. And thank goodness you didn't have me or Jeremy on that mountain with you because we'd have been throwing <laughs> elbows. <laughs> uh, shoot. Thanks for the kind words, guys. I mean, this is about uh, a state that does, I, in my opinion, a better job of managing mule deer than the other states in its in its vicinity. I'm I'm really grateful that I I get to hunt there. That I I can also hunt my home state and. Yeah, I'm a gear junkie. So when when there's a piece of gear that took part in something this unique, I think it's pretty cool for people to know that I take a lot of time in procuring what goes into my bag, my backpack and what goes into the backcountry with me. I can, you know, I'm probably a little bit dogmatic about the fact that if you carry things other than what I carry, you're compromising in some way, shape or form, because I feel that strongly about the due diligence that I've done. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was a statement to say, look, you're the rest manufacturer that was involved in the harvest of this very unique animal, right? You're the bow manufacturer. You're the broadhead manufacturer. I mean, and the fact that you're in my kit, to me is super meaningful because I, unfortunately I have gone down a rabbit hole of making sure I have the, what I feel is a no compromise, best of the best with me in the back country. And, and that's cool for me to be able to share that with the people that take the time to do the research, to do things right, to make it into my backpack. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I thought, it, I thought it was fun and it's about mule deer management. There aren't very many States. I don't know of any others, right? Utah has some good deer that come out of it every year. But I think that Colorado should be commended for the way they're managing mule deer. Um, and I know that they've pushed all the hunts back this year, but based on what those that unit, that group has done in years past, I'm walking into this new situation with absolute faith that their strategy for mitigating or eliminating CWD mm-hmm. or CW is is going to put us all in a better position and mule deer herds in a better position in Colorado in four or five years. Right now we're all talking about hunts being pushed back, but there's a purpose behind that. And I have faith in it because of what I've seen anecdotally on my experience in Colorado. So all the people that are involved in this, I mean, they should be excited about the fact that this happened. Well, we certainly are. And 
we thank you so much for coming in and taking the time to uh, to go through all of this and and lay this storyline out for us so meticulously. Um, <clears throat> Jeremy, any closing thoughts? No, no, I kind of made uh, you know my comments about Justin. I wanted to you know just wanted the world to know it couldn't happen to a better guy. And Justin, appreciate you taking time today to. I've, I've always, I've wanted to hear that you and I have talked a few times, but whenever we've said, Hey, I want to hear the story. You're like, we're going to need a little more time. And I, I haven't heard the story. Um, and it was, I mean, I was visualizing it the whole time going, yeah, I would have screwed that up. Yep. I would have screwed that up. <laughs> yeah. yep, I would have screwed that up. And so to hear you, you know, re- to talk about how you made your decisions and, yeah. and it all turned out awesome. Um, so cool so it's an an awesome story we hope all of you enjoyed it uh go check go check out uh the pictures online you'll be able to find them uh like jeremy said uh when we post this podcast we'll post photos on the the hoyt instagram page of the bucks so you can check it out it's a really unique animal like we said couldn't happen to a better guy you guys uh you guys take it easy and thanks for tuning in Thanks for all your time, guys. Thank you. See you. Hey, guys, we know this one was a little long, but we had some good material to talk about. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Just a quick update. Since recording this, Pope and Young has announced a policy change regarding velvet entries. Prior to this, velvet animals were kind of treated as stepchildren. There wasn't an official velvet category. You could enter them but they weren't ranked. There was no velvet world record. And now they've changed it to where velvet entries are going to have their own category. They are going to be ranked. Justin will be submitting his deer to be scored, and it should be the pending new velvet world record.